and everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to summer. <laughs> Welcome to summer. That's where we are. I like summer because we like to jump into God's Word on Sunday morning and literally just do a take a book of the Bible and just study the Torah out of it. And I enjoy doing that as much as anything in my life. Before I start that, I'm going to ask if you, if Danny, if you'll go with us to the website. I want to show you this. Um, you're, anytime you want to, you can go to our website and go to the All In button right over there. You can click the All In button and some wonderful things happen. You can find out about this series. One of the things that you can find out are some of the songs that we'll be singing. Uh, you can listen to those songs, let them already sort of be in your spirit. Uh, sometimes it helps us to all know what we're singing and know, know what the words are about and let it go on and, and soak into your, into your spirit. And then if you'll go on a little further, you'll see that we have here study notes on the book of James, just brief study notes, uh, a reading schedule so that you can read along and be prepared on Sundays as we, as we talk about uh, the book of James. And also the soap uh, that you just heard Amber share, just when you take a chapter and you just find one of the verses in that chapter that speak to you and let God apply it to your life. It's, it's been an incredible thing uh, all year long. We've enjoyed doing that. And so we just want to remind you in, in this month of what soap is about and uh, use it during our James study. Thank you much, Danny. Um, we, of course, are doing this study. We're calling it All In. I like what Pastor Jay said last week, when you jump out of a plane, you're all in. Uh, you know, if you don't trust that parachute, you're up a creek. You're all in. And that's what the book of James is a lot about. I, just real quickly, let me tell you this. James, the guy that wrote this, most likely was the brother of Jesus. I guess I should say half-brother. The half-brother of Jesus, at least. Um, uh, Church, church tradition tells us that there's like five or six people in the Bible whose name's James. But um, most likely it was Jesus' half-brother, and he was martyred in Jerusalem, stoned to death um, during the New Testament period. Um, he wrote this to Jewish people who were scattered all over the place because they needed to understand about Christianity. I mean, he was, he's writing it to Jewish Christians and they needed to understand some things that really were an important deal. They were going through some trouble, and he wanted to explain to them what it meant to give themselves wholly to Christ and to trust Christ only and not go back into Judaism. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 1. And I'm going I'm to go there in the Scripture and read this, if you'll follow along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the waves of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his waves. 
The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when fully grown, gives birth to to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadow. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That's just one of my favorite uh, parts of the book of James. Right there, the first half of the first chapter, some, some familiar things that you, that you read. You know, when I read this passage, I can almost see James sitting at a table, and he's, he's got in front of him a letter he got. Somebody sent James a letter or a message of some kind, and he's writing a response letter to them. It's almost like somebody wrote him a letter and said, James, you're Jesus' brother. You're a big-time Christian in Jerusalem. I've got some questions for you, buddy. And these are the questions that I just imagine would be in that first letter. Why is God letting bad stuff happen to us? I thought Jesus was the answer to all our problems. Why do we have to go through trouble? Why are God's people having to face persecution? Is it our fault? Did we do something wrong? Is the devil attacking us? If, not, if so, why isn't God protecting us? I thought Christianity was all about hope and faith. And victory. Why, James? Why? Now, really, that's sort of what he's, he's, he's beginning to answer that. You know, I know what that's like. When bad things happen, and we hear about them all the time. When you hear on the news some awful thing that's happened to some people, like, like the floods in Texas this week, and you just see, hear about families literally being washed away out of their car, and you say, why, God, Why? But then when it happens to me, I'm not just saying why, I'm saying why me, God, why me? We ask that question all the time. We ask each other, we ask God. So that's where this letter starts. He starts answering the big question, why? That's a big one. Let's look at, look at verse 2. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of all kinds. Notice he did not say, if ever you face trials. He said, whenever you face trials. Troubles are going to come. Troubles are going to come. That word that he uses there when it says, Many kinds of trials, trials of various kinds. It's a Greek word that means different shades of the same color. It's a word that means trials come in every shape and size and color. 
And we can't say, oh, this trial is from the devil and this kind of trial is from God and this trial is from this and this trial is from that. This is the flesh. This is the devil. This is God. You can't do it like that. There's so many shades in between. You're going, why? Why? Who did, where did this come from? Is it me? Is it the devil? Is it God? What? Troubles are going to come. We need to get out of this mindset of expecting that we're not going to have troubles. We've gotten into this bad habit of thinking that the goal in life is to just go through life with no obstacles. <laughs> that is not ever going to happen. That is actually immature thinking to th say that life is just going to be troubleless. Where did we get the idea that that's what Christian life was? It didn't come from God's Word. Remember what Jesus said? In this life, you will have tribulation. You know what tribulation means? Suffering. The word means suffering. 1 Peter 4.12 says, I love this, Beloved, that's us, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes to you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised, but we are every time. <laughs> every time we're surprised. Oh, God, why? Oh, Lord, how could you let this happen? Oh, God, why me? Oh, you had a trial? Oh, really? Shocker. That's what happens in this world. It's like, um, it's like football players that, let's imagine you've got a son, he's going to go play football and in August he goes out and starts practicing having training there and and he goes out for the very first time and in the very first practice he gets smashed by a linebacker and he comes running over to you on the sidelines and said he knocked me down you look at him and say boy that's what happens when you play football you get knocked down if, if you're going to play football you're going to have to get used to that it's the same way. We need to learn the same thing about this life. Getting hit happens. It happens in this life. We're going to get hit sometimes. We're going to get hurt sometimes. This is not heaven. Have you noticed? This life is not heaven. And the sooner we realize that, the better off we're going to be. This is not the place of perfect rest and perfect everything and perfect circumstances and perfect health all the time. It's not I'm sorry, but this is not your best life now. <laughs> it's not always going to happen that way. This isn't the place for that. That's what heaven is. Don't be surprised when you have trials. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Some are financial trials. Some are family-related. Some are trials of the heart and the motives. Sometimes it's a trial of our senses. Sometimes it's trouble related to persecution you have some I have some we have different ones but we got to prepare ourselves for the fact that we're going to have them aren't you glad you came to church to hear that fact it's like like you didn't know that or something since troubles are a part of life James writes since we're going to have troubles you're going to need something that only Christians have to face those troubles and that's what he's telling them the first one he mentions, I read it to you in verse 2. 
joy. Consider it joy. Are you kidding? That's how you face trials? With joy? Oh, happy day. There's a trial. It's more logical, we say, to respond like this. All right. It's going to happen. Let's just grin and bear it. Let's just get this bad stuff over with. That's, that's the world's attitude toward trouble. Troubles and trials are necessary, but they're really bad. James says that's not supposed to be the Christian attitude toward them. Our attitude is to be opposite of the world's attitude. He says, count it joy. He says, consider it joy. Now notice, he didn't say it's going to feel like joy. <laughs> he didn't say feel the joy because you're not going to feel the joy. There's a difference in feeling the joy and counting it joy. You see, it's not hard to be joyful in, in a worship service where we're singing incredible worship songs and you're surrounded by people with their arms lifted who love you and pray for you and would do anything in the world for you. It's not hard to find joy there. I'll tell you where it's hard to find joy is out there when something happens. When something happens you're not expecting. That's when you have to count it joy. Feel the joy in here. But you understand what it's like out there to count it joy. Consider it joy. To have joy in the middle of trouble takes some intentionality. You have to be intentional about it. You have to say, you know what? I'm going to have to count this as joy. I'm going to make a choice to see this as joy. If you don't do that, your mind is going to run wild, and you're going to become paranoid, and you're going to become negative, and you're going to blame everybody in the whole world. So you have to instead count it, consider it joy. Now, this idea of rejoicing in trials is a Christian idea. Romans 5.3, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our heart. How about 1 Peter 1.6, in all this greatly rejoice Though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come that prove, prove the genuineness of your faith. Of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. May be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You see, this idea of joy in the middle of trouble is not a, a world one. It is a Christian view. Now, some people say, oh, that calls for us to, we got we to gotta do this brainwashing thing and say, this does not hurt. This is joy. This does not hurt. This is joy. It's not a brainwashing thing at all. It's actually an exercise of faith. Consider it joy. It doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. I'm not denying that. But by faith, I know there's something good behind it. There's something good behind it. You know why? I could rejoice because God is with me in it. He actually lives in me. So James basically says this. 
Since you're going to have troubles, you better cultivate joy as the basis of dealing with it. Cultivate joy as the basis to deal with it. And folks, notice I said cultivate joy. Cultivate it. It It takes some work. It takes some work to cultivate anything. It takes time. It takes effort and intentionality. That's the Christian thing. Then he says this. Second thing you're going to need to get through troubles is wisdom. Wisdom? Are you serious? Wisdom for what? Wisdom for what? Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to him. That verse is not just just floating out there saying, oh, here's a nice verse on wisdom. Sometimes that's what we do with the Bible, especially the book of James. We say, oh, that's a nice verse, and we take it out, we stick it on the refrigerator, and it just floats out there. This was in the middle of a letter. Why did he talk about wisdom right now? Let me tell you why. This is real important. James was writing to Jewish believers. Now, the Jews were steeped in the idea that if something went wrong, something bad happened, there was somebody to blame. If something bad happens, you did something to deserve it. That's what the Jews were steeped in. So, therefore, they would naturally believe that God's purpose in suffering or trouble is to punish us for something. That's why they need wisdom. They need wisdom to understand that's not the case. See, we're no different. When we get in trouble, we don't want wisdom. We want knowledge. We want to know why, don't we? When we get in the middle of a mess, we don't want wisdom. We want knowledge. I want God, explain it to me. Or as Ricky Ricardo said, explain it. Explain it, Lucy. But God says, I want to give you wisdom. Now, let, let me explain. Remember when Jesus, there was a man born blind brought to Jesus? He had been blind all his life. And the, peop- and the people came to him, the Jewish leaders came to him and says, Jesus, this man was born blind. Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Because somebody's got to bl- be blamed. There's a reason. Somebody's fault. Was it his fault of his own sin or his parents' sin? And you know what Jesus said? Basically, Jesus said, neither. That's a stupid question. Watch this. And he healed him. That's really what he said. Neither. Stupid question. You see, it's not a matter of why it happened. It's a matter of what are we going to do in the middle of it? What are we going to, how are we going to handle it? How did Jesus handle it? He healed the guy. It didn't matter whose fault it was, and it was nobody's fault. It's called life, and it happens. Now, in verse 5, let me show you that, verse 5 again. Danny, if you'll bring that up. Look at that. He gives generously to all, look at this, without finding fault. Uh, uh, King James says, and upbraideth not. What in the world does upbraideth not mean? It means without finding fault. In other words, he says, if you need wisdom, 
God will give you wisdom, and he's not going to blame stuff on you. You see, God says, if you want to know why things happen, it's not a matter of trying to find who's responsible. It's a matter of how you're going to deal with it in the moment. If, um, if, if you're in a boat, and there's a hole in the boat, and the boat is sinking, you don't say, how did that hole get there? Who's responsible? Because you're going to drown while you're trying to figure that out. Who's going to say it was me while the boat's going down? Nobody. You know what you do? You plug the hole. And that's what he's trying to say. He's saying, you want to know why these bad things happen? I don't know, he says. I don't know why all these bad things are happening, but I know this. God will give you wisdom. What kind of wisdom? To see things through God's eyes. To see how to deal with it according to the will of God instead of throwing blame around. Now, I admit, there are a lot of things that happen that are our fault. We know that. I remember... um, Many years ago, there was a guy in my youth group. Uh, I, I used to be the youth pastor here back in the last millennium, <laughs> in the 70s, actually. I was the youth pastor here, and um, there was a guy in my youth group who had been drinking, and he drove his car too fast around a curve and slammed into a telephone pole. And he was very fortunate to have survived the accident. But he got burned. He had some major burns. And he ended up having to be, of course, in UAB Hospital. And I remember going up there and when he sort of got to where he could communicate with people. And he told me he was mad at God because what God was putting him through. He said, "Uh, I I don't don't understand why God made that happen. And I said, listen, I want to tell you this. Listen carefully. God was not responsible for that accident. You did that all by yourself. I know that sounds like a cruel thing to do, but I said it. You did that all by yourself. I didn't do that to add guilt or shame to him. I did it so he could understand what God did. God preserved his life. You want to know where God was? He was taking care of you. Preserving your life so you could give your heart to Jesus and serve him for the rest of your life. That's it. That's called wisdom is not seeing what happened and why it happened, but understanding what God is trying to say in the middle of it. God didn't cause it, but God definitely used it in his life. That's called wisdom. There are things that we sometimes bring on ourselves. There's suffering that we bring on ourselves, no doubt. It's no mystery, and the Holy Spirit will tell us. The Bible says he convicts us of sin, and that's fine. Let God deal with it. But what's wisdom in how to deal with sin? What do you do? You repent. You put it away and let God start you over. That's what God, that's wisdom, not how am I going to have to pay for this for the rest of my life. He'll give you wisdom to see things through his eyes. He even uses our miscues Our mistakes, our sins, he can use them for a greater end. He didn't cause them. We did that. In fact, he didn't want that to happen. But he could use them for all kinds of incredible things if we have the wisdom to let him do it. But the Bible also makes it clear that not all suffering is a result of sin. James says, as a Christian... You have a different perspective than everybody else. You don't have to assign fault. 
You don't have to. Sometimes there's not. God just maybe has a purpose in the middle of everything. And we say, what good purpose? Well, here's one purpose that could be. The Bible says that it's for the testing of our faith. You know, sometimes the genuineness of our faith needs to be tested. Have you, do you remember that Jesus said not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom? Sometimes it's not a matter of what we just confess with our mouth. It's a matter of where we stand with God. And sometimes that has to be tested. 1 Peter 4.12, I, I, I gave it to you earlier. I think it may be up there again. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes to you for your testing. It happens. This hit home with me a few weeks ago when I was praying for the persecuted church in Pakistan. There are a group of Master's Commission students that were killed when that suicide bomber in uh, Pakistan blew up a church. We have several Master's Commission groups in Pakistan. And, uh, of course, I started praying immediately that God would spare them of all their persecution. And as I prayed, I sort of felt like the Lord was saying, I don't know if that's exactly the prayer that you need to be praying. Many were coming to faith in Jesus in Pakistan. And sometimes that faith has to be tested. People have to see what it really means to serve Jesus. So should I pray, oh God, don't, don't let them come to a time of proving their faith? No. No, sometimes it has to happen. Sometimes people must be tested. Later on, we heard from them that they said, do not pray that we would be spared from persecution. Pray that we will be brave. Same thing's true for us. Whenever we face a trial, it reveals what kind of faith we have. Think about it. You can, I'm, I'm on, this is rubber meets the road time. All right, here we go. You can come in here and you can stand around the front and we can lift our hands to God and we can worship God and praise Him and dance before the Lord and have a wonderful time in Jesus. And the next day when something happens, if you bust into cursing and cursing and screaming and blaming God, something's amiss with the faith. It's not, it's not what you think it is. And it's a test. And sometimes if that happens and you notice you explode in this nasty sin junk coming out of your mouth, why don't you say, God, what is wrong? What's wrong? And God's saying, I'm showing you. What's happening to you on Sunday is not happening on Monday. There's a commitment issue. That's called the testing of our faith. You don't play religious games when you're suffering. Suffering will bring out the real part of you. It's the truth. All of us. Another reason that trials have a purpose is because they help us grow and mature. Look at verse 3. And four, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance, look at this, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What? You mean he says testing is so that we won't lack anything? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. God's goal is for us to grow to spiritual maturity. Y'all agree with that? That's God's goal. Grow to spiritual maturity. How do we get there? Well, one way is through trials. Our trials are a vital part of growth process. Listen, it is not God's goal for us just to be fat and happy. 
if you ask most people, if you, if you were to go on the street somewhere and take a microphone and say, what is, what is your goal in life? Almost everyone would say, to, to be happy. To be happy. All I want is just to be happy. For nothing bad to happen, everything to go smooth and not have any problems. I'm going to tell you, that is not God's goal for your life. God's goal for your life is to be spiritually mature. That's what God's goal for your life is, to be spiritually mature and to be like Jesus. Did Jesus face trials? Yeah, he did. We should see difficulties that we run into, troubles, as a part of God's process of growing us. And that's why we can consider it joy, because on the other end of this, we're going to be stronger. It takes getting a whole different mindset. Instead of seeing everything as bad and hard and difficult and impossible, Let's see it as count it joy. All right, God, you're growing me. You're going to grow me. It's like weightlifting. Really, weightlifting is hard, but it builds muscles. Trials are hard, but it builds spiritual endurance and spiritual muscle. Makes us more like Christ. So, here are two things that he has said. First of all, if you're going to have troubles, and you are, you need Christian joy. And the second thing you're going to need is Christian wisdom to know how to handle it, to see it through God's perspective. But there's a third thing, faith. You probably say, duh, of course, faith. Let's look at what he says in verses 6 through 8. When you ask, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. What James was referring to here was not some kind of, oh, I'm not believing my prayer enough. He's not talking about this. This actually is not a verse about prayer. It says, it's a verse about commitment. He's not saying, let, let a person, when he, when he decides he's going to pray for something, let him lock in and say, I'm not going to believe anything else. I'm not going to let anybody discourage me. I'm, you know, I'm going to pray for healing. If anybody says I'm, I'm sick, I'm just going to say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. That is not what he's talking about. If you got, if you got blood running out your ear and somebody goes, you got blood running out your ear. No, I do not. That's stupid. <laughs> It's about commitment. If any man is going to give yourself to Jesus, and that's what these Jewish people had done. They had taken themselves out of Judaism and given themselves to Jesus. And he's saying, look, if you want wisdom from God, you've got to ask him. But he doesn't want somebody that hadn't decided if they're going to be Christian or not. He hadn't decided. He, it's, if somebody says, I'm going to try this Christian thing, and if I get all the stuff I want, I'll be a Christian. No. He's talking about Commitment. He's talking about commitment. If you're going to pray for wisdom, say, God, let me see things through your perspective. But you have not decided to believe in him and to be stable and believe in Jesus. You're not going to get any. You're not going to see things through God's perspective because you're not on God's side yet. That's what he's trying to say to them. The Bible says in verse 6, you saw it, tossed by the wind. He, he describes somebody with instability. They have no anchor. They're driven, they're tossed by the wind. In Ephesians, Paul says, 
Uh, We're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. There's this idea that in Christianity, people get tossed back and forth. It's like people have no stability, no anchor. And that's what James is talking about. He's not saying you can't have doubts in your mind. He's just saying you can't have doubts about where, who you're going to serve. You may have doubts of what God's will is. You may have doubts of whether this is going to happen or not. But you can't doubt whether or not you're going to serve God. He's saying he's not going to answer someone who's re- not really committed to him. They want God's wisdom and blessing one moment. And then the world's wisdom and blessing the next moment. You can't be up and down on what you want. you got to decide, I want God's perspective. God, I want your perspective. One time, I remember I was in, a, I was in uh, Missouri. Peggy and I lived there for about a couple of years, and I, I was in school. And um, I, I had actually was trying to find out what God wanted me to do. And um, I, I was, at that time, we were pastors of a little bitty church up there. Faith Assembly of God, and it took a lot of it to be pastor of Faith Assembly. And, and uh, while we were there, um, we had been there about a couple of years, and uh, Pastor Ron called me and asked me to come back to Alabaster. And that was really sort of unheard of. You generally don't go back to the church you've been to before. I, we had been here about five years, and then I went to school, and then I just thought I was going to be a pastor somewhere. And, and Pastor Ron called and asked me to come back here, not as youth pastor, but as, a, as assistant pastor. And I remember going, God, is this, what is this? I don't know. And I remember talk, went and talked to a guy, and he said, well, Mark, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I, I want to do what God's will is. He goes, well, I'll tell you what you do. You pray and say, God, don't just read my heart, because your heart can be a little bit messed up. Read my heart of hearts. He said, tell God, God, deep in my heart, I only want to do your will. And right now, I'd love to go back and be around the friends that I was before. But God, I really want to do your will the most. Go all the way to the bottom and say, God, if I'm thinking wrong, then I ask you to reach the bottom of my heart where I really want to do your will. God, I really want that. Well, I remember, I remember saying, boy, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It sort of takes away my emotions out of it. God, if I'm wrong, ignore me and just read my heart. I really want to do your will. Someone who has decided they're going to serve God and want God's perspective, it's their heart of hearts that's cr- crying out. The heart can be emotional, but God, you're in the center of my heart. Just obey that voice. Now, the other uh, a phrase it uses is the phrase double-minded. It's in verse 8. Double-minded is a word, it's a Greek word that means two souls. Ooh, two souls. A double-minded man is somebody with two souls. Um, in James 4, he even says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says it again. I think James probably coined that phrase. He's the only one in the Bible that, that uses the word double-minded. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, Israel was called double-minded, though, when they said they served God and uh, Yahweh or Jehovah and other gods at the same time. And in Galatians, he said that, Paul was, uh, Paul called Peter hypocritical, which also means double-minded. My favorite thing, though, is to understand this is Paul Bunyan. Paul, but not Paul Bunyan. <laughs> He's the big guy with the with the with the tree. John Bunyan. I knew he had a bunion, whatever it was. 
John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and there's a guy in Pilgrim's Progress called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Anybody remember that? Mr. Facing Both Ways. (laughs) And it's hilarious because it's a double-minded man. He can't decide if he's going to serve God or not. You've all heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was this incredible preacher in England in the 1800s. He wrote something about Mr. Facing Both Ways. I want to just read to you what he wrote. He said, Mr. Facing Both Ways, new company makes him a new man. Like water, he boils or freezes according to the temperature. Some do this because they have no principles. They are like a weather vane and turn with the wind, north, south, east, west, northeast, northwest, or any other in all the world. Like frogs, they live on land or water, and they're not at all particular, which is uh, they're so good-natured they must agree with everyone. They have no backbone. You can bend them like a willow wand, backward, forward, whichever way you please. They try to be jack of both sides, but they deserve to be kicked like a football by everyone. Spurgeon had no uh, he, double-minded people who hadn't decided they were going to follow Christ wholly. It's like having a split personality. It means you have one mind at church and another mind on the job. You have one mind in Sunday school and the other one in high school. There are a lot of ways of being double-minded, but it basically means you don't have a firm commitment to the Lord on a daily basis. Now, Some of you may have read this, but in Christianity Today recently, there was an article called Hipster Faith. Did anybody read that article? It's called Hipster Faith. Listen to this. It's about people today, specifically young people and young married people, who are not content with following Christianity, and they want to be cool like their friends in the world. So they have started hipster churches. They meet in bars, they sip on beer while they discuss theology, they rebel against authority, they curse during their sermons because, you know, using those words is just a normal thing, they want to be like everyone else. They smoke and drink, do all the other friends, things that their secular friends do to show that Christianity is all among the people. They say that's what Jesus would have done, don't think so. Um, But they never reconcile how... The hipster church deals when the Bible says that we're not to be like the world. In fact, the Bible says the very opposite. It's it's like people are paralyzed between being Christian or being cool because they don't feel like they can be both. So they try to make Christianity cool. Now, I've seen this. I see it a lot now. Um, People are struggling. They want to be cool, considered cool, but they also want to be Christian. And sometimes it's a real important choice that young people have to make. And I want to say this to everyone. Um, It doesn't matter. Cool doesn't matter because cool is so relative. But in this generation, cool matters a whole lot. Way too much. The problem is you can't be cool and Christian at the same time in this culture. Not totally cool and Christian at the same time in this culture. You can be relevant, but relevant isn't always cool. That's what James is talking about when he talks about double-mindedness. 
People say, I want to, man, I want to be able to relate to the world. I want to go out there. I want to be where the sinners are. So I'm going to do what the sinners do and win them to Christ. Are you kidding? How many are coming? I don't see like evangelism explosion going on among hipster churches. Alcoholism is rising, but I don't see evangelism happening. God is looking for people who are all in. And that's where we come to this. When you face troubles, you know what's going to get you through? Being all in. Being sold out. When you face a trouble, you are totally committed to that. Um, our incredible son-in-law, well, we have two of them, but one of them is Joel. And Joel, uh, several years ago, was going to go skydiving. Some of you probably went with him. It was one of those where you jump out of a plane and somebody is with you, like tandem. You're like attached to somebody else, which is the only way I would even consider it. But I, I didn't do it, notice. Joel said uh, he, was, he was up there and this guy told him all that's going to happen, you know, and he felt okay. But then the guy told, everybody called this guy Satan. That was his nickname. Joel said, didn't feel real good to be jumping out of a plane with Satan. But he said he jumped. He said they're sailing down it, seeing things seem fine and they mash pull the ripcord and the the parachute pulls them up and then all of a sudden satan starts just screaming cursing going ah, and going crazy joel said something was wrong and he said the guy uh just joel said i was all in so to speak there was nothing he could do he had to trust something good was going to happen in this he said he uh the guy leaned down and said just scream as loud as you can. And he did. And the guy cut the parachute and pulled the reserve parachute. There was something wrong. Pull the reserve parachute. And Joel said, Joel said that that was the most harrowing experience of his life. When Satan cut the parachute. But God is looking for people whose trust in God is like he had to trust that guy who wasn't literally Satan, thank the Lord. He had to trust that guy that he was going to get him out of that mess. God's looking for those kind of people. And James is all about that. Who don't throw away their faith when trouble comes. They don't try to decide who caused it, but how to obey Jesus in it. There are lessons I would never have learned if I hadn't suffered. There are studies I would never have made if I hadn't suffered. There are scriptures I would never, that would never have come alive to me if I hadn't suffered. There are prayers I would never have prayed if I hadn't suffered. There's a confession I would never have made if I hadn't suffered. There are sermons I would have never preached had I not suffered. There are ministries I would have never been a part of had I not suffered. There are people that would have never been blessed had I not suffered. There's a maturity that would never have come to me had I not suffered. And there's a praise I could never give to God had I not suffered. And I think that's the way it is. We need to change and have a Christian mindset of suffering. Consider it pure joy. Wisdom, faith, joy. There's a poem that's incredible. This, this poem is one of my favorites. Uh, Barry McGuire, back in the 70s, put it to music. It's called, I Walked a Mile with Pleasure. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. 
Then I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she. But all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Would you bow your heads? I know that people in this room, many of you are going through suffering and trial. Physical, financial, personal, family. Maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for someone else. But there are troubles. Today, God says to you, there's a way to handle it. I'll give you joy. I'll give you my perspective. And I'll give you stability. If that's what you want, that's what the Lord's going to give you today. Would you stand with me? Prayer team, if you would just come and stand at the front. What I'm going to do, we're just going to ask the music to play. And I'm going to ask you, if you feel like God drawing you today, I want you just to come and let one of these people pray with you this morning. Just let one of them pray with you. Troubles are going to come. You're going to need help. Would you just come and let someone pray with you today? Father, I ask you to give them, give them the courage just to come and let someone agree that they'll have your perspective and your joy and an anchor of faith as they walk through troubles. In Jesus' name. Would you come? Step out and come. Someone's waiting to pray with you right now. Would you come?